someone having a great story to tell is, is what inspires me. Um, because fame for fame's own sake, we see is not necessarily a healthy thing for any culture, certainly our own. Uh, so I'm usually want to, to share stories because sometimes what's shared with me is private. But there have certainly been photos. This photography podcast is brought to you by Frames, the upcoming printed photography magazine. Here is your today's host, W. Scott Olsen, with another fascinating conversation. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Frames. My name is Scott Olson, and I am talking today with Beowulf Sheehan. Beowulf is one of the most sought-after, most successful, and I believe most important portrait photographers in New York these days. He has worked in more than 50 countries, lectured at New York University and Yale, among other places. And if you go to his website, you will see portraits of people like Oprah Winfrey, Toni Morrison, Patti Smith, Margaret Atwood, Patrick Stewart, Ian McKellen, Paul Simon, and dozens and dozens of others. It is a body of work um, of which I am personally uh, quite envious. Good morning, Beowulf. Good morning, Scott. It's great to hear your voice. I, I do have a quick thought for you. Uh, I've not traveled to 50 countries to photograph. I've photographed in better than 10 uh, by way of commissions. However, I have photographed people from at least 50 countries and hopefully been able to travel to their worlds and cultures through those experiences. Okay. I, I, I saw that on your resume and I was impressed and I'm still impressed. So <laughs> tell me how, how things are in New York this morning. New York is a beautiful place this morning. Uh, it, the air is cool and crisp outside. I did have a short walk this morning. I am very fortunate that out my window I have a cemetery, so I get to see lush trees and I have a great deal of quiet. What sounds I hear every morning in this new time of ours are, is usually uh, one of two things that I hear. I'll either hear, hear birdsong or I will hear the, the sound of a passing ambulance. And of course, I'm happy to hear the former and not to hear the latter. That is the time in which we live. Summer mornings in New York City. Yes. Um, tell me about portrait photography, but let, let, let's begin where people begin. How in the world did you get into photography? How did you get into the kind of portraiture that you do specifically? I firstly got into photography being a shy boy and wanting to make friends. And... Prior to the thought of making friends, I wanted to be reacquainted with my father. My parents divorced when I was in elementary school. My father was out of my life for a few years. And when he came back at the beginning of my high school years, he had a Konica 35mm camera, a long lens to go with it. And when I arrived at high school, which was a high school outside of my neighborhood, I went to a magnet high school for foreign languages. I was bused very early in the morning to get there. I was in uh, the ethnic minority, and had a world of new friends to make. And when I got to school, my classmates were speaking about two things with which I was unfamiliar. Uh, the Miami Dolphins, I grew up in Fort Lauderdale, and girls. And I knew very little about both. <laughs> but, but, I had, but I had been working in the summers and not really spent that money on anything beyond books and comic books. So I had enough money saved to become the youngest person in the history of the Miami Dolphins to buy season tickets to the Miami Dolphins. Oh, that's impressive. I don't, 
I, so what I had done was then I began to use my father's camera and I would take a tripod, that camera, that long lens and invite a new acquaintance from high school to each game. And I believe my mother had driven then two of us down uh, to attend these games and no one ever stopped me. Uh, the guards were very kind. They recognized me after a few games. I always went through the same gate, that sort of thing, and was able to watch Dan Marino throw the ball around and make pictures and then make prints of those pictures and share them with classmates over time, developing friendships and, of course, uh, getting to know my father again. Oh, that, that's a wonderful beginning. Uh, there is, I know, uh, an extraordinary event, though, in, in your early uh, connection to reading and to photography. <laughs> that's possible, yes. <laughs> but, but uh, sorry, I'll let you lead that. So when you're asking what the extraordinary connection is. Well, yeah, you, you are probably the only, you are the only person I know who's ever been bitten by an alligator. Oh, this is true. This, uh, this is, I don't know all the people in your life, of course, who you know, but... Uh, <laughs> But I'm the only person I know who's been bitten by an alligator. And that happened to me in the summer of 1976 in uh, June of that year. I was, of course, uh, on summer break from school, quite small. And my brother and I were playing in the backyard of the home of a friend of my mother in southwest Fort Lauderdale, where there are canals. And those canals, in some cases, feed then their way west to the uh, Florida Everglades. And, of course, that's where alligators hang out. And uh, some of them sometimes get lost. So my brother and I had been wrestling in this lady's backyard. It was time to hit, come into the house for lunch. I had asked the lady of the house if we could use her hose to wash over our feet since they were full of dirt from the grass. And the young lady had said, uh, no, actually, better just uh, splash your feet off the edge of the dock and then come in. It'll be quicker. And I went first. And I remember sitting at the edge of the dock, enjoying splashing my feet and looking at my brother, and my brother is 20 months younger than me, made his eyes get bigger. And he looked down at my foot. I looked down then at my foot, and I saw the alligator close its mouth around my right foot. And I went to some degree of shock. The alligator let go. He caught the outside artery of my ankle, and the blood shot out, a la a bad money python sketch. And my my brother then began to uh, grab my body and to try to pull my body up. And my mother and my mother's friend, of course, had come out of the house at this time. And they were lifting me from the dock then onto the grass. The alligator had gone back under the dock. And I don't know how much more time passed or how much blood I'd lost. But I then at some point found myself in the emergency room of the hospital where my brother was born, only a few blocks away. And uh, doctors worked and saved my foot saved my leg. There was a concern for infection and, and loss. And I was very lucky then to have, for the balance of the summer, have gone to the hospital every day to dip my foot in Epsom salts to save it. And that meant, of course, not being able to play games. It meant not being able to enjoy summer camp, not being able to do sports, to do much of anything that involved mobility. And that deepened my reading. And then with it, of course, my drawing and my reading and drawing through my childhood and, and beyond began with comic books and then on to more challenging books, uh, more interesting books. Maybe more interesting is not the right word to say because comic books are wonderful and they're very, very interesting. Otherwise, we wouldn't have these films and adaptations and all the stories that now the masses see in film. Uh, but the, uh, the books, of course, comic books would come out once a month. 
And it was great to go to 7-Eleven after school and pick up those books, but I would devour them so quickly. And then I really wasn't in the mood to wait another month for the next book to come out. So I would just draw the stories myself. The drawing worked its way over time, of course, into photography, but that's a longer conversation, which I'm happy to have. I, I think that is, is the most remarkable series of connections, though, uh, to have a, a traumatic injury lead to more reading time to then lead to a particular niche that you've carved out, uh, which is, uh, among other things in, in your portfolio, literary portraits. Um, do you remember who, who your first contact was in sort of the, the literary world as a photographic subject? Three things happened within a few months' time of each other. I had as I began to dive into this world, already studied photography formally. I'd studied at New York University, got my master's there, and I had studied with the year track program at ICP, International Center of Photography, which has a partnership program with New York University. And I had assisted a number of photographers, was continuing to assist to learn as much as I could. And I'd done independent workshops with great photographers, both here and abroad to that point. And within a few months of each other, three things happened. I was very involved with the German community at New York University. My mother's from Hamburg, and so I, I'm very enamored with her culture, her language, my family, of course. And I wanted to keep that going. So I was hanging out often at Deutsches Haus, the cultural arm of New York University. And Deutsches Haus had a writer-in-residence program. And the director of that program had asked me if I would make portraits of those writers. So every six weeks, there was another writer from a Germanic country. And that led to some early photo sessions with some great, great writers, among them Daniel Kelman, who had yet to uh, publish a book called Measuring the World to Enjoy the Success that it did. It went on to become uh, the, the best-selling book in the history of Germany after the Bible. It was so successful in Germany that it was actually read on the radio for a certain amount of time every day over time. And can you imagine in our lifetimes that happening in this country? It, it was, what a great, great thing. And his publisher saw the pictures we'd made and went on to then uh, reach out to me for commissions for photographs of writers here who were being published by that publisher in Germany. That was one thing that happened. Another thing that happened was that I actually had my start in fashion. I knew a number of people in that world. I wasn't really right for that world. Uh, the writer Hilton Alls, who at some point I had photographed, had once uh, famously written that fashion is for the masses and style is for the individual. And I'm very curious about people who have style. Uh, fashion is perhaps a different thing. And there's amazing, amazing latitude for creativity. And some of the greatest photographers in history uh, made their mark through fashion. Uh, but I found myself in photographing for fashion years ago, more interested in the people who were wearing the clothes and what they had to say than the clothes themselves. Oh my. Uh, tell me about what makes a portrait beyond just very good. What, what makes it excellent? Because I'm looking at your body, I'm, I'm looking at, at your body of work here. And I should, by the way, pause here to tell the people who are listening, um, if they want to sort of follow along, uh, your website, uh, which is beowulfshean.com. I'm going to spell it out here. B-E-O-W-U-L-F, no space, S-H-E-E-H-A-N.com, beowulfshean.com. Um, I'm looking at your body of work here that's on the website. And some of the people there 
their faces are uh, world known. Uh, Oprah Winfrey, for example, we all know what she looks like. Um, it, there's one type of challenge in coming up with a extraordinary portrait of her. There are dozens of authors whose works we may know, but their faces are complete blanks to us. Um, how, how do you go about bringing them to life as well? Oh, wow. What great, great questions. Well, I'm going to quickly finish up answering the prior question, which is that through the fashion world, I was asked to do a story for Vogue Nippon, which is Japanese Vogue. And it had a story called Fashion Biography. Fashion Biography was an end of magazine, last page, one page story on somebody who had been in fashion and now was doing other things. And I photographed a person who had been a fashion model and went on to write a memoir about growing up as the daughter of a well-known soul singer. And her publisher, HarperCollins, saw the pictures after the magazine was published, contacted me and asked me what I charged for author portraits. That was another foray. And then the third was being asked to photograph the very first Penworld Voices Festival of International Literature, which very, very quickly introduced me to a number of great writers from around the world. And 16 years later, I'm still that festival's photographer, meeting a good 50 plus photographer, uh, sorry, writers uh, from around the world with each and every festival that comes. And it's a joyous, joyous experience for me. And that, that has fed, that experience has just with each year, uh, expanded the world of the community I, uh, with which with whom I work in literature. Uh, to the idea of what makes a great an author portrait or a great portrait, it is a very, very slippery thing because there's no single image to my thinking in history that's ever spoken to the entirety of a person if that's a goal of a portrait. If a portrait is meant to say, this is who I am, good luck. Because, <laughs> because we, are, we are everything. Each and every one of us has been as ugly as we have been beautiful. We've had our moments and we will have our moments, both good and bad, in our lives' journeys. Yet over time, I think it was Warren Buffett who had said at some point, as, as, as we get older, we just become that much more ourselves. And we want to be free to be comfortable in the best of ourselves. And some people go down some dark paths and they, they, that essence just in using Buffett's quote, uh, just becomes that much more present, but it, the positive elements of, of course of us can become that much more present too. If we can speak to perhaps that, that one thing that is both public and private, that is wonderful, that is compelling. And if it, that person has something dark about him or her themselves, okay, then that's what we'll speak to. That the recognition, the recognition is certainly there that this is a picture that's going to be made public. So to the idea of photographing a writer, a writer is already saying, there's something inside me that I can't help but share. I am compelled within myself to put this thought, this burning message I wish to send on paper. And I'm going to spend years of my life doing just that because that's what it takes. And I'm going to take the risk then of putting my story and therefore to some end myself out in the world to be judged to be received, to be criticized, to be lauded, to be ignored. Whatever happens, that writer has to be comfortable in taking that step. And each and every writer is. Otherwise, that step would never be taken. Having an author portrait, to me, is part and parcel to that. You're saying with your words, this is who I am, to some end. Just as you're saying with that photograph, this is who I am. 
I'm willing to take the risk of making myself vulnerable on hopefully a world stage with my work. And I hope you'll embrace me for having done so. I hope you'll learn something for what it is I've experienced and I'm now sharing, whatever that work might be. On some level, this message is the same. And then that photograph is part and parcel to it. This is the vessel that carries the message of my life story. This is my face. There's a story here, too. That, that is a remarkable explanation. Um, I, I, I am humbled listening to it. Tell, tell me about your style as a photographer now, though, because I'm looking again at your work. You've got bright, colorful images. You've got black and white images. You've got very complex, rich backgrounds. You've got you know plain backgrounds. When do you make those decisions? How do you make those decisions? No matter what we do in life, we have the same job. That job is to make the person or party who or that engages us to do our work happy in a certain way. There's something I make, there's something I do, and someone or something asks me to do that, to make that, whatever that's, that service or product is in my work. And if I've done that for you, if I've provided that service, I've given you that good, whatever it is that you've asked of me, if I've done a good job in delivering that, then I've made you happy. The customer to some end is always right. I see every opportunity, certainly with an author, to speak to what he, she, they wish to say. And what that means then is that I do my homework as best I can before I have the experience with the writer. I don't always have such an opportunity, but what that means is that I'll read the work. In reading the work, the book tells me what to see. And I hope I'm reading it properly in that there are metaphors coming out of the story that I then can put into a photograph. And I'll run those by my subject. I'll ask the author this, this is what I'm seeing. And therefore that's this type of location, this quality of light, this type of background, this color, this tone. Am I right? Are you comfortable with this? Am I saying what you want to say? Are we on the same page? metaphorically speaking. And hopefully I'm right, or we are right, because if I'm wrong, then that's okay. That subject can tell me, no, I don't wish to make such a picture. Okay, no worries. Then let's make these pictures. So the photographs, you know, or at least the art direction behind them are collaborations. That's very true. Yes. Yes. Well, walk me through the story of one photograph here, if you would. Um, the one I'm looking at at the moment is Neil Gaiman and, and the door out in the forest. Um, yes. I, either that picture or any other, if you could sort of walk me through the pre-planning specifically to that image. Sure. Sure. So I had only an hour with Neil to make seven pictures, which is not much time at all, but that's uh, what the job required. And so that's what we did. And we did better than seven photographs, but we had to present concepts that spoke metaphorically to his work. The pictures were being made for a book of his called Norse mythology in which he was retelling some of these wonderful myths and history from that part of the world. And if you read Neil Gaiman's work, you'll see that a number of icons keep repeating themselves. One of them is the idea of a portal to another world. It exists in Coraline, for example. Uh, there's that door in, in the home and, and she goes through the door and suddenly she's in this other universe. 
and thinking that as a simple constant and a simple device that appears in Neil's stories, I asked if that's something we could explore. And he said, yes. And so I actually rented three different doors <laughs> and, and, with my, and with my two assistants, we tied them to the top of the car and we found our way after a few hours driving, of course, at Neil's uh, property. And we let him choose then the door that would be the door and put him before it. <laughs> and in his writing, Neil Gaiman is the gatekeeper to this other world. And he invites that reader to dive in, to explore it, to take in the fantasy and wonder and, and journey of his characters as they do the same. Oh, that, that's a wonderful story. I didn't know you could go rent a door, um, but that's, <laughs> I love that story. Uh, let me ask about one other, uh, Michael Coffey in New York. Uh, he's actually very small in the frame of that picture. Yes. Um, it, 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 it's not your standard head and shoulders portrait. How did that one come to be? So we also have the challenge in life of making do with what we have and what we don't have. If we have big budgets, we can do all kinds of great things. If we have the ability to travel as we don't now, imagine what things are possible when we have the freedom and resources to make certain dreams come true. Now, with most things in life, we don't have such luxuries. We have the following things before us. We have certain things in our homes. We have certain things that are within reach of us. Within a few steps of Michael Coffey's home in downtown Manhattan, there were some locations that I felt spoke to his work and to his journey. So he's written a number of books. I'd um, written, written uh, sorry, I'd photographed him to support a book about, uh, I believe, the work of Steinbeck. And Michael had also been, prior to his writing, that work had spent a number of years as, I believe, the editor of Publishers Weekly which meant that his job was to be a springboard for the works of countless writers, giving voice to what it is they wish to say and putting it out there. And so I tried to think of locations that were metaphoric to that idea. And if you look at that photograph, you'll see the lines of the wall against which he's resting radiate out and up, just like a rising sun. And so that's the very, very subtle idea there. And what you're actually seeing is a beautifully designed uh, salt reservoir mm -hmm. <laughs> on, just off the West Side Highway at Canal Street. But it's been used for many photo shoots. I, I learned after making those pictures, I'd seen it in advertising here and then I recognized, oh, that's where we worked too. It definitely has its photogenic qualities and its metaphors. And it seemed right for Michael's journey. Oh, it's, it's a beautiful setting. I know when I first saw that shot, I sent it to several friends in New York and I said, where is this? I'm, well, that's the salt building. That's a, um, another type of your work is, is not um, author portraits, but it is performance work, uh, ballet or fencing or, or street uh, performance. Yes. Uh, tell me a little bit. Tell me a little bit about your work in that world. So we all need a balance in life. And. We have, um, I'm thinking of a film called Shall We Dance? It was, I believe, a Japanese film that at some point had a U.S. Adap adaptation. And it's a, about a fellow who has a job that's uh, very, very tiring. It's very demanding. And he loses his wife, I think, to a separation. And on the train ride home every night, he passes 
uh, a building in which there's one light on and you can see in that in that room as as the train continues uh, people dancing and at some point he decides one night to get off the train and walk up to that space and he begins to take dancing lessons and he's very awkward and as he learns with this older lady then to dance she takes him in his in her arms and begins to move him and in relaying the, the paces to him she says quick quick slow quick quick slow there's something about portraiture that is very slow that's very meditative i want time to on some level just stop we can have this quiet safe place between the two of us but life isn't always like that life is also a fraction of a second and things happening lightningly quickly about us. The great thing about street photography, about photojournalism, is that there's that moment out there that will be poignant, that will be compelling, that will be colorful, that will be everything. And if you don't look quickly enough, you'll miss it. And it's not going to come back. Something similar might come back, but that specific moment is over. In portraiture, if you don't get it right, hopefully you're still on the same page with your subject. You can, can still control light environment, things like that, you can try again. And I love the challenge then of quote unquote real life. Not that portraiture isn't real life, but what's happening beyond your control. I can't control what happens in a performance. What I can control is how I see it, how I frame it, how bright or dark I make it. I can control the quality of light as the camera and I see it, but I, I can't manipulate the event itself. It's just a way of seeing that one can practice and and so I love being able to speak to both ends. On a, to either end, I'm supporting an artist, which is really what I, I'm enjoying doing. I'm in, or my, my joy is being a vessel for the work of someone else. A portrait does that. My making a portrait with someone says, hey, world, this is a person I just photographed. This person has something so wonderful to say. Please do what I've done. Read that book. Learn, grow, be excited. There are amazing stories out there. And I hope you'll take in as many of them as you can, because we'll, we'll be all the greater for having done so. And not every, every great story is in a book. Every performance is a story, too. And there is something wonderful about a dancer finding that moment when that artist's body is also a vessel for telling the story of a choreographer or of the dancer, him, her, themselves, that defies gravity, that does things beyond the capabilities of a lay person such as myself. That person is a superhero too, superheroine too. And I read stories of people jumping buildings in the single bound when I was quite small. And, now, <laughs> and, and these artists do it every day. And if mm -hmm. the artist is not a dancer, the artist does it in different ways, on the screen, on the stage, in a song, in a poem, in a painting, in a sculpture, whatever the medium is, there's something wonderful out there that's being shared and not everything that's being shared wonderfully is slow. Sometimes it's quick and both ends of the spectrum of the speed of life excite me. You know, writers have stories and, and dancers and other performers have stories. Well, photographers have stories too. Can you tell me one where a shoot went absolutely down the drain uh, or, 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 where, or where one was, was more sublime than, than you could ever have imagined? I mean, are, are there super stories from your own experience that you would tell other photographers? 
Oh, goodness. Yes, and, and I should say that this question has me thinking of, as, because at times it is tied to notions of celebrity, and, and celebrity is not something that drives me. Someone having a great story to tell is, is what inspires me. Um, because fame for fame's own sake, we see is not necessarily a healthy thing for, in, for any culture, certainly our own. Uh, so I'm usually want to, to share stories because sometimes what's shared with me is private, but there have certainly been photo shoots in which it has just been so very beautiful and others where it has just all fallen apart and the person didn't want to be photographed to begin with. And sometimes the energy directed toward me is not that pleasant and that's okay. I've not met that person. That person doesn't know me and, and what I've been able to learn about that person before the experience is driven by what I've been able to read or see, review, study. And so there are, there are levels to, of course, engagement. Um, and sometimes I've had that split second with somebody, and it's been absolutely gorgeous. I had very little time, for example, with Joan Didion. She was kindly reading as part of the 50th anniversary of the New York Review of Books at Town Hall, I believe in 2015. And I was given the chance to make portraits of all the people who were going to then read for that event. And she was one of them. And we had very little time together. And there was time that she looked away. There was time that she engaged me. She didn't say a single word in the two to three, two to three, four minutes we had together. She responded to recommendations I made, but I kept those to a minimum too. And yet her eyes were so piercingly strong and they said everything that could have been and would have been needed to have said otherwise. She needn't have said a single word to me. It was all in her eyes. It was such a beautiful, moving, moving thing. I had a similar experience with Ellie Wiesel a few years prior. Just we, we did speak with each other, and I'd photographed him twice before he said goodbye. And I recall the second time being that just much more comfortable with each other. He knew me by then. And it was just this moment full of so much grace and watching his face relax and, and open to me. He's somebody, of course, who'd been photographed to that point so many times. And there was nothing posy about it. It was genuine. It was open. It was loving. It's him. It's one of the photographs, of course, in my book. It's one of the photo, f- favorite photographs of my career to have been that close to a man of such grace. Uh, it was very moving for myself. Oh, that, that's a remarkable story. Um, Photographers, you know, bring their own artistry to the work they do. But I would be remiss if I didn't spend uh, at least one question asking you about the hardware. So without going into too much detail, can you run me through what what a standard studio shot would involve for you and and what a field shoot would involve in terms of your kit, in terms of what you bring to bring your vision to that site? Sure, gladly. Thanks for asking. I, I do feel compelled to firstly say that there's never a single camera in history that has made a photograph. Cameras don't make pictures. Cameras don't take pictures. People do. And cameras, of course, are the tools with which we do so. So just for for those who are listening, I don't want you to hang too much on my words in answering this question because it's not the tool. It's what you do with the tool. You can take that $10 plastic Holga camera and make a beautiful, beautiful image. And you can also take a $25,000, $30,000 medium format digital camera and make a terrible image. So, yep. so, so <laughs> very true. Very true. Yes. Yeah, so don't let the tool be the reason 
uh, why you you pursue it, but rather what it is or who it is you wish to photograph to be the reason you work with a certain tool. When I work in the field, I need something that's quick, and I'm working principally with Canon cameras. Uh, despite there having been upgrades since then, I'm still most fond of the Canon 5D Mark III. The 5D Mark IV didn't work for me for different reasons, but uh, I'm very fond of the camera. And, and I'll use that for most of my performance work. In studio, I work with Canon 5DSR. It's slower. It has a less sensitive ISO range. However, it is um, very dense in its sensor and it does deliver beautiful color and it's an ideal studio portraiture camera. That's in the 35 millimeter digital equivalent. Uh, beyond that, uh, the phase one camera systems are brilliant. That's a medium format digital camera system uh, with which I work from time to time. And for film, I'm very fond of the Contact 645. It's the favorite camera of my entire life. However, it's not been supported for a number of years. And with it, I have to have uh, said, sadly said goodbye to it. I work when photographing film, then mostly with the Hasselblad 503CW a six by six centimeter medium format camera, which is gorgeous and decades old and it works. Digital photography is a great thing, but all it's ever tried to do is work and look like film. And of course it has been doing a great job of that for some time. When it comes to lighting then in studio, I work with, I have worked in the past with Ellen Chrome, with Norman, with different systems, uh, but I principally work these days with Braun color and or pro photo lighting. Okay. Um, one of the things that the people listening may not know is that you have a tremendously uh, generous side to your work uh, and to your spirit. Um, your recent book, author, The Portraits of Beowulf Sheehan, uh, part of the proceeds from that uh, book go to a program of the National Book Foundation called Book Up. You are teaching lessons these days, and part of those um, proceeds go to the Pen America Writers Emergency Fund. You've also got the Author a Day project. Um, tell me a little bit about the, the lessons you're teaching. Tell me a little bit about the Author a Day project and what it is you're hoping and doing with both. No matter what we've done in life, hopefully you've gotten to a point of however you wish to measure it, success. And having done so means that there is a community out there who has gotten you to that point. There's nobody who's done anything of any significant contribution to history, society, or oneself without the support of many people before that moment, that time, that journey. And we now living in this time, of course, um, we have with that certain challenges, but we also have certain opportunities. I'm unable to make a portrait of a human being in this time. But I have this moment now to look back on my journey and say thank you to all the people who have given me so very much. So the Author a Day project is a project in which every morning I post on my website and also on my Instagram feed a portrait of a writer with links then to that writer's books so that people can then buy those books or they can order a print of that author portrait or they can also donate to an organization which through this project, I'm trying to support an organization called the Authors League Fund, which since 1917 has been supporting writers in dire financial need, be it from medical, housing, um, food needs, whatever the, the emergency is, the, the, the fund has been there to meet those needs over time. So that's one way for me to say thank you. 
my book, Author of the Portraits of Beowulf Sheen, is another way to say thank you. I was very fortunate growing up to have fallen in love with reading. And I remember very often running to the, uh, not running, but bicycling to <laughs> my library and then just getting lost in books because I'd finished the books I had at home already. I remember reading American Cinematographer magazine in middle school, looking at these wonderful images, of course, of films and thinking, oh, this is, this is so captivating. I wonder if maybe at some point in my future, I could do something similar to this. Oh my. And when I think of those things, having been a young person and being turned on to writing and all that it's done for me to further my education and to, and to inspire what I've done with my life and to build community, the book then is a chance to give thanks to that end and to then help this effort by the National Book Foundation to inspire writing by young people in challenged communities across the country. And lastly, PEN America, which has been a great, great advocate of, of me and me for it for better than 15 years time now, of course, recently announced its Writers Emergency Fund. And so with my having the opportunity to give back directly to young aspiring photographers or people who just enjoy the art form and wish to become stronger in it through teaching and through occasional seminars, I'm teaching one this Saturday afternoon, I can then uh, support that fund. That's wonderful. You mentioned a little earlier that you couldn't take pictures of people these days. And so my final question is, well, okay, you know, we are in this time of pandemic. We are in this time of, of quarantine. Uh, what, what is your photographic life doing these days when we can't get out and do the work we normally do? True. Uh, we, we certainly can't. And it's a chance then for me to take inventory on some level. The Author A Day Project is forcing me to go back through my body of work and find a picture of a writer, perhaps previously published, perhaps not, and put that out into the world as a way to hopefully then support that community, as I'd mentioned. But I still have this impulse, this internal compel compulsion to, to create somehow, to document. That is what a photographer does. Or we record, no matter what it is we photograph or who it is we photograph, we're still rec recording history from our perspective. We can't help but be subjective. And Photography in itself is an incredibly wide spectrum of subject matter and tools. And I have heretofore worked principally with human beings and have had such a beautiful journey and love the experiences I have doing so, be it in a portrait setting or in a performance setting. But what I've not done is photograph still life. And of course, the still life hopefully doesn't have the risk of being part of the contagion. It is something safe and it has its own story. And so what I've discovered to do now is to photograph flowers. And in doing so, of course, I'm learning to see differently. I'm learning to light differently, finding beauty in, in their color, their texture, their forms. And hopefully when it's safe to be around one another again, I'll have a, a lovely body of work to that end to share. And I'll, we'll have learned something that I can then bring back to the work I usually do with people. Oh, I am looking forward to that tremendously. Um, once again, for everyone listening, the website is beowulfshehan.com, B-E-O-W-U-L-F-S-H-E-E-H-A-N.com. Uh, and the book is called Author, uh, The Portraits of Beowulf Sheehan. Beowulf, thank you very much for your time this morning. Oh, goodness, Scott. Thank you ever so much. I look forward to talking to you soon. Take care. Can't wait. You do the same. Cheers. 
Hello, it's Tomasz. I am the editor of Frames. If you enjoyed today's podcast, I can imagine you would like to hear more about what we are currently working on. Later this year, we will be launching a quarterly printed photography magazine. It will be a beautifully designed, inspiring publication. I personally truly believe that excellent photography belongs on paper, hence the idea of frames. To find out more about frames and to join more than 14,000 photography enthusiasts who enjoy our weekly newsletter, go ahead and visit frames.photography. I would love to have you in our community. Thanks so much.